Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Thank you, guys. Thanks for your interest. Today we'll hear from the State Department's Assistant Secretary for Western Hemisphere Affairs on the strategy behind the President's significant shift in U.S. policy towards Cuba. Assistant Secretary Jacobson is joined at the witness table by the counselor of the State Department, Ambassador Thomas Shannon. We welcome you both. Cuba has been left behind politically and economically, a far cry from a time decades ago when it was among the most prosperous countries in the region. The administration's Cuba policy initiative has been welcomed in Latin America and the Caribbean. But significant differences, uh, which we'll hear today, of opinion exist in the United States over the ex extent to which change in po this change in policy will advance U.S. interests and improve circumstances for the Cuban people. Today we look forward to our witnesses uh, to speak to how our nation can best engage strategically with the region and beyond to help Cuba rejoin the mainstream of Americas and offer its citizens the same rights and freedoms enjoyed by citizens of other countries in the region. To this end, our witnesses can help us understand the administration's policy goals with regards to Cuba. What do they intend to achieve in restoring full diplomatic relations and relaxing sanctions? We would also like to hear their assessment of what Cuba, the Cuban government goals are for engaging in this diplomatic process with the United States. Every policy initiative will inevitably come into contact with the reality that the Cuban state, and most importantly, the Cuban state's relationship with its own citizens have not yet changed. In truth, we have to define what a normal relationship with Cuba looks like bilaterally, but also in the context of our relationship with the Americas more broadly. Our overall relations with Latin America and the Caribbean have evolved significant over, significantly over past decades. The last unilateral U.S. military intervention in the region occurred more than 20 years ago in Haiti. U.S. trade with Latin America and the Caribbean have more than doubled from 2000 to 2012. In the process of opening to increase trade with the United States and each other, Latin American countries have taken steps to adopt market reforms and create more transparent legal and investment standards. The norm in the region is for regular multi-party elections and more broadly, inter-American institutions today reflect the commitment by the region to more democratic, inclusive governments. The U.S. relationship with Latin America is very different than it was during the Spanish-American War in 1898 or during the Cold War in 1959. This is the larger strategic context in which the way forward for our relations with Cuba will be defined. And we thank you both very much for being here. I look forward to the opening comments of our distinguished ranking member, Senator Cardin. Well, well thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I certainly welcome our, our witnesses today, and I thank you very much for conducting this hearing. There's no question that the December 17th uh, action by President Obama in his historical speech marked a watershed moment in our relationships towards Cuba. Uh, there's members of this committee who believe it went too far. There are members of this committee who think it went, didn't go far enough. But one thing I think is critically important, and that is that we have an open committee hearing 
and discussion on these issues, and that's why I particularly thank the chairman for, for bringing forward uh, this hearing so that we can engage uh, a discussion on uh, the new direction with Cuba. On that date, also, we celebrated long overdue return to the United States of a Maryland resident, Alan Gross. And uh, Mr. Chairman, by consent, I would ask that his statement be included in our record. We, uh, we um, all are, are interested to hear from our witnesses that today's hearing provides an important opportunity to review the advances achieved under the administration's new Cuba policy and understand the, the strategy for moving forward. Without a doubt, this is a complicated process and it will take time to achieve the progress we all want. I, I want to underscore that there is one issue that I think unites us, even though we may all have different views as to uh, where we should move with the Cuban policy. And that one, uh, one area that I think unites every member of this committee and the United States Senate is that we all stand together in our aspirations to see the Cuban people have the opportunity to build a society where human rights and fundamental freedoms are respected, where democratic values and political pluralism are tolerated, and where individuals can work unobstructed to improve their living conditions. This is particularly true with the Afro-Cuban population. We also share concerns about the critical issues such as the Cuban government's ongoing abuses of human rights and the presence of American fugitives in Cuba, especially those wanted for the murder of U.S. law enforcement officers. But the central question is, how can we best advance these aspirations while also addressing these concerns? Our previous policy did not achieve the progress that we wanted to see, and so a new approach is needed. President Obama has laid out a new path based on the belief that principled engagement will bring more results. I think that this is the right path to follow for the following reasons. First, for far too long, the Cuban government has used U.S. policy as an excuse to justify its shortcomings and the hardships of the Cuban people. The Cuban government has also exploited U.S. policy for diplomatic gains, focusing international debate about what the U.S. should do rather than about what Cuba needs to do to better provide for its citizens. This has been a particular challenge here in our own hemisphere, where governments, including some of our closest partners, have long preferred to speak out critically about the U.S. policy rather than about the conditions on the island. The President's policy has reset the geopolitical calculus in the region and will provide new opportunities for cooperation in our Latin American and, and Caribbean partners. The recent summit of the Americas and Panama showcased this point clearly, and both President Obama and the U.S. were praised widely for their leadership. In one particular important development, the presidents of Costa Rica and Uruguay joined President Obama in meeting with Cuban dissidents. Uh, this was a, an incredibly important moment, and it, was, uh, it, it showed uh, the, uh, the international community. Uh, I want to thank Senator Boxer, because Senator Boxer of the Western Hemisphere Subcommittee had a chance to hear from Mr. Costa um, uh, Mo. Rua, uh, that you invited to that hearing, and I think that was an important uh, point also. Such acts uh, of seeing Latin American presidents join the U.S. president in meeting with members of the Cuban opposition was unthinkable just six months ago. Second, despite differences we may have with a government, our, our foreign policy should always endeavor to support the country's people to the greatest degree possible. 
When President Obama first came to office in 2009, he created greater flexibility for Cuban Americans to visit their families in Cuba and to send remittances to the islands. These early policy changes have provided important support to the emerging class of Cuban entrepreneurs that have been able to launch new economic initiatives, often working out of their own homes. While the Cuban government still limits the activities widely and not all Cubans are able to take advantage of them, U.S. policy is directly responsible for helping the Cuban people improve their living conditions and achieve a new degree of independence from the Cuban government. The President's December announcement went one step further and has made it easier for U.S. citizens to engage in purposeful travel to Cuba. Whether for academic or philanthropic or business reasons, U.S. citizens will now have greater opportunities to take part in people-to-people -people programs that provide increased interaction with the people of Cuba. I have no doubt that the dynamism of American society will make a positive contribution to empowering the Cuban people and provide them with the information they need to build the future of their country. While the President's policies have made important changes to U.S. travel regulations, there are some think that only Congress can do. For that reason, I am a co-sponsor of Senator Flake's Freedom to Travel to Cuba Act. I think we must do everything we can to promote robust ties between the citizens of the United States and Cuba, and I hope we will have the opportunity to discuss that bill uh, during uh, this hearing. And then third, the administration's new Cuba policy will provide U.S., and especially our diplomats, with new tools to engage directly with the Cuban government, to have principled and frank discussions about the issues we disagree about, and how we might work together to better uh, have a common interest uh, on resolving these interests. Every day, our diplomats around the world demonstrate their ability to engage foreign governments and advance U.S. national interests. It's not unreasonable to think that we will have a better chance to address the outstanding claims held by U.S. citizens for property confiscated by the Cuban government or to secure the return of American fugitives to face justice in the United States if we actually engage in direct dialogue with the Cuban government and articulate our demands. And when it comes to issues of confronting illicit counter-narcotics trade or addressing migration issues, it's in national interests of both the United States and Cuba to have channels of communication between our two governments. Diplomacy will make this possible. The President's Cuban policy has put the United States on the right path, but we must remain clear-eyed about several issues, and we must continue to speak out about them. We cannot ignore the Cuban government's record of human rights or human trafficking. Every month, there are way too many cases where the Cuban government jails political activists for what they believe in, what they say publicly. Human rights and freedom of expression must be this central to all of our engagements with the Cuban government. I know that Assistant Secretary Tom Molinowski led a human rights dialogue with the Cuban government earlier this year, and I welcome our witnesses' uh, comments uh, on, on this development. Mr. Chairman, uh, as I said initially, we do welcome uh, the witnesses that are going to testify today, and I thank you again for this opportunity for our committee. Well, thank you very much, and uh, now I will, uh, our first witness is the Honorable Roberta Jacobson. She's the Assistant Secretary for State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. Assistant Secretary Jacobson has led the State Department discussions with the Cuban government regarding establishing diplomatic relations. Our second witness is Ambassador Thomas Shannon. He is the counselor to the State Department. Most recently, he served as American ambassador to Brazil. Among his duties, he has also served as senior director for the Western Hemisphere at the National Security Council. We thank you both for being here. Um, you can keep your comments as fairly brief if you wish, and we'll accept your written testimony into the record. And We look forward to the questions that we'll pursue. Thank you. 
Thank you so much, Mr. Chairman and Ranking Member Cardin, for the opportunity to testify on U.S.-Cuba policy today and, and your interest in the hemisphere more broadly. Let me just underscore this unique moment, I think, in the Americas for the United States. It's remarkable to see how U.S. relations with countries of the hemisphere are increasingly characterized by mature partnerships and shared values and interests. The depth and breadth of the partnerships we have with Canada, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Peru, Mexico, and so many others is extraordinary. I'm especially proud of our renewed commitment to working with Central America and the Northern Triangle countries, including our $1 billion FY 2016 request, which we believe will strengthen regional security, prosperity, and good governance. But since I last appeared before this committee in February, we've begun to see the administration's new approach on Cuba, providing space for other nations in the hemisphere and around the world to focus on promoting respect for human rights and fundamental freedoms in Cuba. At the Summit of the Americas in Panama, engagement by the President and the Secretary reinvigorated our momentum. Our approach has drawn attention to the potential for greater p political and economic freedom for the Cuban people and the gap between Cuba and other countries in the hemisphere. More Americans are traveling to Cuba, meeting Cubans, and building shared understanding between our people. And we've seen practical cooperation in our dialogues with Cuba on issues in our national interests like maritime and aviation security, set telecommunications, and environmental cooperation. Our future discussions on law enforcement cooperation, coupled with ongoing migration talks, will expand the avenues available to seek the return of American fugitives from justice, among other issues. And we're planning on future talks on human rights and settling American claims for expropriated proper property. And most importantly, the President's new approach makes clear that the U.S. can no longer be blamed as an obstacle to progress on such things as access to information or connecting Cubans to the world. Fundamentally on this issue, I'm a realist, and as anyone who's ever dealt with Cuba knows, realist, being a realist is essential. Indeed, as the President made clear prior to his historic meeting with Raul Castro at the summit, significant dis differences remain between our two governments. We continue to raise our concerns regarding democracy, human rights, and freedom of expression. The policy is based on a clear-eyed strategy that empowers the Cuban people to determine their own future by creating new economic opportunities and increasing their contact with the outside world. These changes create new connections between our countries and help the nascent private sector in Cuba. But comprehensive changes in our economic re relationship will require congressional action to lift the embargo, and the President has urged Congress to begin that effort. The administration's decision to rescind Cuba's designation as a state sponsor of terrorism was a fact-based process, as the President has emphasized. While progress has been made in our efforts to reestablish diplomatic relations, we are not there yet. There are still outstanding issues that need to be addressed to ensure a future U.S. Embassy will be able to function more like other diplomatic missions in Cuba and elsewhere in the world. But even today, under challenging circumstances, our diplomats unite families through our immigration processing, provide American citizens services, issue visas, and aid in refugee resettlement. They work hard to represent the interests and values of the United States. Our engagement with the broadest range of Cubans will expand once we establish diplomatic relations with Cuba, and tomorrow we will be holding a new round of talks with our Cuban counterparts to advance these objectives. As we move the process ahead, we hope we can also work together to find common ground towards our shared goal of enabling the Cuban people to freely determine their own future. 
Thank you, and I welcome your questions. Uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member Cardin, and members of the committee, uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to, to appear before you. Um, as the chairman noted, we've submitted our uh, testimony, and so I will just uh, hit a few of the high points. I'd like to start by saying it's a pleasure and honor to appear before you with Assistant Secretary Roberta Jacobson, uh, who has served so ably and successfully as our principal diplomat in the Americas. Uh, my purpose today, along with the Assistant Secretary, is to address the regional context in which our Cuba policy is unfolding and to lay out some of the strategic uh, dimensions of our diplomacy. The great American theorist of international relations, Hans Morgenthau, once wrote, our purpose is not to defend or preserve a presence or restore a past, it is to create the future. And he noted that our global engagement, whether it be diplomacy or force of arms, has always been meant to defend one kind of future against another kind of future. Uh, it is in this light uh, that we should understand the President's policy towards Cuba. Uh, the decision to engage with Cuba and seek normalization of our bilateral relationship attempts to create a new terrain on which to pursue a future that meets our interests and corresponds to our values. Our commitment to democracy and human rights and our desire and hope that the Cuban people will know the benefits of liberty and become the sovereigns of their own destiny is no less for our action. The President has been clear about the commitment in our Cuba policy to our enduring and fundamental principles of self-government and individual liberty. However, he's also been clear about our inability to affect significant change in Cuba acting alone across so many decades. Instead, he determined that our efforts would be more effective if we could position Cuba squarely within an inter-American system that recognizes democracy as a right that belongs to all the peoples of our hemisphere, uh, that believes that democracy is essential to the political, economic, and social development of our peoples and has the juridical instruments, treaties, and agreements to give shape, form, and weight to these commitments. It's our determination that this kind of environment would be the most propitious to support the only legitimate agent of peaceful and enduring political change in Cuba, the Cuban people. Uh, to understand this point better, it would be worthwhile to take a closer look at what the hemisphere Cuba is a part of uh, looks like in the second decade of the 21st century. The Americans, and specifically Americas, and specifically Latin America, has anticipated many of the events that are shaping our world today. It is a region that has largely moved from authoritarian to democratic government, from closed to open economies, from exclusive to inclusive societies, from autarchical development to regional integration, and from isolation to globalization. There's a few points uh, worth making in this regard. First, Latin America is the first region in the world, in the developing world, to commit itself to democracy. It was also the first region to establish uh, regional and sub-regional structures to promote and defend human rights, and to build sub-regional institutions and mechanisms for dialogue. Because of this, it has also built shared economic understandings, including a commitment to market economies, free trade, and regional integration. But perhaps most dramatically, Latin America today is pursuing a second generation of change or transformation. It is attempting to use democratic governance and democratic institutions to build democratic societies and states. The great experiment uh, in Latin America today is to show that democracy and markets can deliver economic development and can address the social inequities of poverty, inequality, and social exclusion. The profound changes unleashed in Latin America show that democracy and markets can deliver economic development. 
And in effect, Latin America has used the, uh, the democracy and markets to launch a peaceful social revolution that is transforming many countries in the region in long-lasting ways. Our ability to promote a profound and dramatic change in Latin America is an example of what the United States can accomplish through diplomacy and engagement. If we accomplished such a profound transformation in our hemisphere through engagement, why not try the same approach with Cuba? And better yet, why not try it in partnership with countries and institutions that are now prepared to work with us because of the President's new policy? Cuba finds itself today part of a dynamic, vibrant region where transformative change has been the watchword for several decades. And it finds itself in a region where the momentum of that change will continue to reshape political, economic, and social landscapes. In such an environment, the Cuban people will find many models and partners from which to learn and choose. We should be one of those models and partners. Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for this opportunity to speak, and we look forward to your questions. Well, thank you both. And uh, I want to thank the committee for uh, the way that it has handled uh, what I think have been some really difficult issues since we began this year. And uh, I know there's uh, significant differences of opinion relative to the Cuba policy that's been laid out, and, and I'm really glad we have those differences of opinion um, represented here, and I look forward to a, a robust uh, Q&A. One of the questions that I've had um, from the very beginning has been, what are the specific changes within Cuba that we have negotiated or asked for as it relates to this uh, policy change? It's my sense that there have really been none, and I wonder if you might expand on that. I think it's been a question that most people have asked that have not been following the Cuba situation near as closely as you, and that is, are there specific things that uh, we expect Cuba to do in return for this uh, change in policy towards them? Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I think that as we move forward with this policy, what's important to understand is the majority of the things that the president did, he took action on because he believes strongly, we believe that they are in our interest and in the interest of the, U of the Cuban people the U.S. people and the Cuban people, they weren't negotiated with the Cuban government. So the regulatory changes that allow for greater purposeful travel, um, that allow for support by Americans to the emerging private sector in Cuba, um, indeed the normalization itself to pursue engagement, uh, normalization and the reestablishment of diplomatic relations, of course, must be worked out mutually with the Cuban government. But the rest of the measures that were taken to support and indeed empower the Cuban people were not things that were negotiated with the Cuban government. They were actions and policies taken unilaterally by us. Um, we believe that over time, especially things like support for emerging private sector entrepreneurs and in particular the um, hopefully the increase in telecommunications and information technology in Cuba will make a big difference in the ability of Cuban citizens to determine their own future. So they were not negotiated with the Cuban government per se. Ambassador Shannon, you want to expand on that, Annie, or? Uh, I, I think we'll definitely. Okay. So, so let me ask you just, uh, I was going to go in a different direction, but since you mentioned uh, technology, 
Um, it, it was an interesting thing to announce that U.S. companies uh, were going to be more involved technology-wise, but it's my understanding that the Cuban government really doesn't allow much access relative to the outside world uh, with communications. So I'm just wondering, we made a big deal out of that announcement, but what's the net effect of it if the government itself doesn't really allow its citizens to participate in that way? Well, I think that it's very important that the Cuban government has said as part of the UN's efforts to open information to citizens around the world that they want to expand access for the Cuban people. Um, we are hopeful that that will happen. Right now, there is not access for most Cubans. It's very expensive. It's not available. And it, it's not necessarily something they can have in their own homes. But the ability of their Cuban government and Cuba in general to have a more up-to-date uh, modern infrastructure on telecommunications and information is something that's critical to the modernization of the Cuban economy. And therefore, we would like American companies to be part of bringing better information technology to Cuba, which is why the president felt it was important to allow American companies mm -hmm. to do so. The Cuban government hasn't yet made decisions to move forward with that, but there are American companies that are talking with the Cuban government, and there's no doubt that there is a desire for greater information by the Cuban people, and we would like to do everything we can to enable that. Mm -hmm. So since we didn't negotiate, and I, and I understand that for changes because we thought this was in our, our interest, what is it that you think, on the other hand, will be the response by the Cuban government? In other words, what do you think, even though we didn't negotiate, even though we didn't try to leverage in any way, what do you suspect um, that policy, what are the policy changes that will occur inside Cuba as a result of these changes? Well, there's already been underway in Cuba, obviously, some limited economic reforms the ability of some half a million or more uh, entrepreneurs to go into 200 or so approved businesses, business areas if to, in private business, uh, self-employment. Um, that is an area I think that is, is really ripe for support, uh, that the regulations support. And I would hope there will be many more of these uh, entrepreneurs emerging and that they will be able to prosper and expand and be agents for change within Cuba. There is obviously um, very different views on political system as well as the economic system of Cuba. The president's been clear about that. We think that engagement with the citizens of Cuba by average Americans um, who are going for purposeful travel, which has increased under this policy, and the ability for the private sector to increase and hopefully information to increase. And we're not sure what the Cuban government will do in the face of these things. I think they're still absorbing our changes and making their own policy decisions. But we know from polling that's been done inside Cuba that the narrative of the US being responsible for economic privations and other, uh, dis other uh, disadvantages of the Cuban people is no longer blamed on the United States. That narrative is eroding. Okay. 
Well, thank you. I have one last question. I want to first thank you for the time that both of you spent in my office on another matter. And uh, I know we talked uh, uh, about the region in general. I wonder if Ambassador Shannon, you might just talk a little bit about the effect uh, that this policy announcement uh, has had on our ability in the region to discuss other issues of importance for our country. Uh, thank you very much, Senator. Um, this is an important component uh, of our policy uh, because we believe that uh, the decision to uh, engage with Cuba and to normalize relations uh, removes uh, an irritant uh, that has not only um, limited where we can work with some of our, our partners and others in the region, but it has also over time degraded some of our most important multilateral institutions, especially in the inter-American system within the OAS and the Summit of the Americas process. I mentioned in my testimony the region has built a series of sub-regional mechanisms and institutions to build dialogue. Um, for the most part, this has been very positive. Uh, but in some instances, some of these institutions have been decided, have been built, and I'm speaking in particular of the community of Latin American and Caribbean nations, uh, to permit uh, Caribbean and Latin American countries to have a conversation among themselves with Cuba where we are not present. Uh, and this is, um, in the long term, is not in our advantage. Uh, and therefore, by working towards normalization, we actually create an opportunity for the inter-American system to, to reassert itself as the premier political, economic, and, and social institutions uh, in the Americas. And I believe this is an opportunity that we need to take advantage of. But in particular, in, in regard uh, to Cuba, uh, the region understands and knows uh, that Cuba is the only country uh, in the hemisphere that has not made an explicit commitment to democracy and has not recognized through the Inter-American Democratic Charter democracy as a right of all the peoples of the Americas. Uh, and although they have taken different approaches than we have, uh, we are really now in a position to be able to press them uh, to work harder on democracy and human rights issues inside of Cuba. Well, thank you both. Senator Cardin. Well, again, thank you both for being here. Uh, let me just uh, quote from the most recent State Department Human Rights Report, where it's acknowledged that Cuba is an authoritarian state where elections are neither free nor fair. And quoting, the principal human rights abuses were abridgment of the rights of citizens to change their government and use the government threats, extrajudicial physical violence, intimidation, mobs, harassment, detention to prevent free expression of peaceful assembly. The following additional abuses continue harsh prison conditions, arbitrary arrests, selective prosecutions, and denial of fair trials. Then it goes on to say, interfere with privacy, engage in pervasive monitoring of private communications, do not respect the freedom of speech, severely restrict internet access, monopoly of media outlets, circumscribed academic freedoms, maintain significant restrictions on the ability of religious groups, refuse to recognize independent human rights groups, prevent workers from forming unions, exercising their labor rights, most human rights abuses were official acts committed at the direction of the government. Impunity for perpetrators remain widespread. That's the most recent report from the State Department. And then the independent human rights organization, the Cuban Commission for Human Rights and National Reconciliation, have documented in the first four months of this year about 1,600 cases of arbitrary, politically motivated detentions, which is about the same pace we've seen historically in Cuba over the last uh, three years. I mention that because I want to get specific here for a moment as to how you intend to, to uh, evaluate Cuba's progress on human rights and use 
our tools at our disposal to advance that. I use as an example the OSCE, which is a, um, a consensus organization without enforcement, and yet it's known globally for its commitment to advance human rights. It's been very successful to Helsinki Watch, Helsinki groups. The OAS, I'm not aware of having the same type of effectiveness in advancing human rights in our own hemisphere. So my question to you is how do you intend to use the OAS, how do you intend to use the United Nations now that we have removed this obstacle as you see it as for having credibility to raise these issues, how do we intend to use U.S. leadership to advance human rights progress in Cuba and how can we evaluate whether we're making progress in that area? Senator, thank you. Um, I think there's a couple things. First, there's no doubt that we will continue to write human rights reports that are honest and unflinching in what they describe as going on in Cuba, um, that there continue to be these short-term detentions that should not be going on, uh, harassing individual human rights activists, groups, preventing them from having their, uh, their rights exercised. And, and so there's a, a range of tools, one of which the President highlighted in terms of speaking out, but we also now have another tool at our disposal, which is direct engagement, including the human rights dialogue, which will move forward. There is no doubt from the preliminary conversations we've had that we have very distinct views of human rights and universal, uh, internationally recognized human rights. Um, but we will now be able to have that conversation much more directly going forward. In addition, in terms of international organizations and our ability to work with others more effectively in those international organizations, as you know, uh, Cuba is suspended from the OAS. They have been since 1962. But the questions of looking at human rights issues in Cuba, as uh, Ambassador Shannon said, whether they are living up to the commitments that all of the rest of us have made in the hemisphere through the Inter-American Democratic Charter, through uh, tools like the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, those are tools which we are more able to use, reference, and discuss with our partners who I think are much more engaged in having that discussion with us post policy engagement and opening now that we're well, more How would that be reflected? I understand that, and I said that in my opening comments. H how can we know that we're making that progress? What specific agenda items do you intend to do, and what allies will we have to hold Cuba accountable for adhering to internationally recognized human rights? Well, obviously, the, the, the best metrics of progress will be on the ground in terms of, you know, whether it's a reduction in short-term detentions or a growing ability by Cubans of all stripes to be able to speak and be able to exercise their democratic rights. I think the President was pretty clear on our also understanding that change is not going to come to Cuba overnight, and as we work on this, we have to understand that in empowering Cubans and to, to take their own responsibility for these rights, there will be um, progress and there will be setbacks. We will speak out about those. We will work with other countries in the various international organizations. I can't tell you exactly 
what the agenda, where we will talk with other countries, we will certainly do so at the OAS, we will do so in the UN bodies, whether that's the UN Human Rights Council or other instruments such as those. What leverage will we exercise over Cuba in regards to our expectations that they will make progress on these internationally recognized human rights standards? Well, I think one of the things that is most important is the ability to have embassies and to carry out the functions under the Vienna Conventions to travel around Cuba and to be able to interact with the widest number of Cuban citizens, which we've not been able to do up until now. And that is critical that our diplomats also be the first person observers of things, which hasn't been the case in the past. That is obviously something that we're working on right now. What countries in our hemisphere do you believe you can work closest with in putting pressure on Cuba to comply with international recognized human rights? Well, I think that the, the ambassador may have more to say about this. My own view is there are many countries in the hemisphere that will work with us, whether it's publicly or behind the scenes. Countries that have committed, are obviously democratic countries committed to human rights. Um, you know, countries around the hemisphere such as Costa Rica and Uruguay and allies like Colombia um, and Peru and Mexico, which have worked on tough human rights issues around the hemisphere and will be in conversations with us. But, but many in the region, in the Caribbean, uh, in Central America, uh, will be working with us on this, committed to the same principles. Thank you. Thanks, Chairman. Senator Rubio. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. Secretary Jacobson, before I get to my questions, I wanted to ask, you discussed that we are in these discussions with the Cubans and we have distinct views on human rights, and I don't mean to say that this is what you meant, but let's just be clear. These are not two distinct views that are both legitimate. This is a view of human rights that we have and a view of human rights they have, which under no circumstances fits under any definition of human rights. Uh, th their views on human rights are not legitimate, they're immoral. The notion that you can round up people and arrest them because they disagree with the government, the theory that you can send thugs to Panama to breed up on democracy activists. I mean, you would say this up front, right, that their view of human rights isn't just different from ours. They are flat out wrong and immoral in their views. I, I, we have said clearly that we don't think those views accord with international standards and the Universal Declaration with human, of Human Rights. So the rights, Cubans are flat out wrong when it comes to human rights. On, on repressing people's rights to free speech and, and assembly, we, we do not think they're correct. Yet. There's no moral equivalence between our view of human rights and theirs. I, I didn't say that, and I, I would not, that's not what I was trying to say. All right, good. I wanted to get that clear. Let me talk about travel. It's a big part of what everyone's talking about. Uh, the truth is, that, and I'm going from Hotel Magazine, um, Hotel Magazine wrote a few years ago that Gaviota, SA, which is owned by the Cuban military and is a prominent subsidiary of Grupo, Grupo Gaesa, which is the holding company that basically controls the entire Cuban economy, it's also the largest hotel conglomerate in Latin America and the Caribbean. It has hotel holdings equivalent to the Walt Disney Company's hotel holdings. And it's run by General Luis Alberto Rodriguez Lopez Callejas. That's a long name. Uh, he's Raul Castro's son-in-law. Let me read you uh, something that McClatchy newspapers wrote a few years ago about this network. It wrote, quote, tourists who sleep in some of Cuba's hotels, drive rental cars, fill up their gas tanks, and even those riding in taxis have something in common. They are contributing to the Cuban Revolutionary Armed Forces bottom line, end quote. In essence, recognizing that if you travel to Cuba, 
If you stay in a Cuban hotel, in all likelihood you're staying in a hotel run by the Cuban military. If you rent a car, you're renting it from the Cuban military. If you fill up your gas tank, you're filling up from the Cuban military. And I would add that if you stay at a hotel, you are staying in all likelihood in a confiscated property, a land that was taken from a previous private owner who was never compensated for it. In essence, when you travel to Cuba and stay in one of these hotels, not only are you putting money in the hands of the Cuban government, you're trafficking in stolen goods because it is a property that belonged to a private holder, some of American citizens, who were never compensated for it. So when we talk about increased travel to Cuba and more commerce with Cuba through travel, what we're really talking about is increased business ties with the Cuban military for the most part. Is that not an accurate assessment at this time? It is certainly accurate that the Cuban state, including the military, runs many of those, a, a, a large percentage of the hotels and other infrastructure. We also now have an increasing number of casas particulares, people's individual homes, which are being used as hotels or, or B&Bs, Airbnb working on that, and private entrepreneurs moving into spaces to support the purposeful travel. So then why wouldn't we limit our opening and travel to say, if you travel to Cuba, you can only stay at one of these casa particulares or uh, one of these other non-governmental, non-military owned facilities why wouldn't we, as part of our opening, say, you can travel to Cuba, but you cannot stay in a property that was stolen, and you cannot stay in a property owned or operated by the Cuban government, which includes even the foreign-flagged hotels, because they have majority ownership there as well? Senator, our strong belief is, though, we are aware that there will be some financial benefit to the Cuban government by the larger number of Americans going to Cuba the benefit of those larger numbers, which could not be supported only by individual homes, uh, for example, uh, the, in, the benefit to the Cuban people uh, of this larger number of Americans going far outweighs the increased um, in economic benefit that may accrue to the Cuban government. So just to understand clearly, and, and, and uh, bottom line is you, you agree that if you travel to Cuba, you are staying in all likelihood in a stolen property that is in all likelihood run by the Cuban government. But that said, the fact that there's going to be Americans present there uh, outweighs, the benefit of having Americans being able to travel and interact with Cuba outweighs the economic benefits that are going directly to the Cuban military. I would say that it's possible those properties are confiscated. It's, it's certainly the case that many of the properties are state-owned, um, but we do believe that the benefit well, Which outweighs. property, other than those private homes that you've talked about, which are also largely state-owned as well, but at least an individual is running it, other than the private homes, that, which is a still a very small sector of their economy, which Cuban hotel is not owned or operated? Which, which Cuban hotel is not owned by the Cuban government? Well, I said that I, I assume that most of them are state-run, especially because the joint ventures, even joint ventures, are majority Cuban. But then all of them Cuban. are state-run. Is there a private-owned hotel Cuba. in Cuba? I, I don't know, sir, but I assume that there are none. But there are, they, as I say, these bed and breakfasts and individual homes. Right. But again, I think the premise on which we're basing this is that the benefits of engagement, purposeful travel, are very, very great to the Cuban people and seen overwhelmingly by the Cuban people as of benefit to them, as surveys show. Well, you also, I want to talk about the internet for a moment. Um, Cubans, as you said, have blamed the U.S. for lack of access to the internet and, and so forth. It's been couched as a lack of capacity. In fact, the Cubans only say that our own president has said that. Quote, he said, unfortunately, our sanctions on Cuba have denied Cubans access to technology 
that has empowered individuals around the world, end quote. But I think you know that, that that's not true. For example, there is no Japanese embargo on Cuba. There is no South Korean embargo on Cuba. And yet those technologies are not widely available either. Is it not true that at the end of the day, access to internet in Cuba is not simply a function of capacity because there are multiple other company, countries around the world that do not have an embargo on Cuba that can provide cell technology or internet technology. Is it not true that the vast majority of the impediment to access to the internet and technology in Cuba is as a result of Cuban government censorship? I think the denial of access has been both one of policy and one of, um, in terms of American access to American products, also a, a one of policy of the United States. We're taking one of those two things away. They're, they are now able to have access to U.S. products, which we always believe are the best in the world, um, and that leaves only policy. I understand, but there are still other countries. I have a Samsung. Why isn't Cuba washing Samsungs? Uh, why isn't all these other countries around the world that don't have an embargo on Cuba, why haven't they been allowed to come in and offer Wi-Fi and all the sorts of things that developed countries have? In essence, it, it, it's not a capacity issue. The reason why people in Cuba don't have access to the Internet, ultimately, is because the Cuban government won't allow it. Well, there, there is a question of infrastructure that needs to be present to, to utilize the... the the but other countries policy. could have provided that. They, they could have. The and Cubans so policy is clearly, is clearly a, a big part of this, and we don't know whether that policy will change. They have said they want to modernize their telecommunications sector. So why didn't they do it with the Japanese, the Koreans, the Germans, or any other number of countries around the world that have Internet and technology capabilities outside of U.S.? capabilities? I, I'm hoping they want our stuff. No, I understand. <laughs> and our, we but will be able to compete well, but we also see on the island many Samsung phones, many other cell phone technology of the latest make, but it's not connected to anything yet. Well, it's connected that, to the Cuban government internet uh, uh, telecommunications. And that, that will be the question. Can they open to something that allows their economic development to be enter the modern world and connect Cubans to the world. Senator Boxer. Mr. Chairman, thank you. And Senator Cardin, as the ranking member on the Latin America subcommittee, uh, Senator Rubio is my chairman. I really appreciate the full committee looking at this. Well, I do want to pick up on what Senator Rubio said, but in kind of a different way. You know, when you listen to my colleague, you think this was the only country in the world that we have relations with, and we're starting to have relations with, where the state owns hotels. A lot of my colleagues, maybe all of my colleagues on the Republican side, I can't be sure, but I think voted to go ahead with a free trade agreement that includes Vietnam, an out-and-out -out communist country that pays a minimum wage of 70 cents, that owns all the hotels, trust me. But yet, and still, we have relations. And the reason we have relations are geopolitical reasons, that we want to work to change these places. So I think my colleague, with his line of questioning, has really proven the point. Because Russia, a lot of Russian hotels are owned by the uh, country. China, you, are we going to start telling people what hotels to stay in in China and Russia and Vietnam and Cuba? Come on. We don't do that. We're not an authoritarian country. You know, if people choose to stay in an Airbnb in Cuba, that would make me happy. That's a San Francisco-based company. 
And I, wa I wanted to mention that I'm very proud. They're one of the first U.S. businesses to take advantage of new economic opportunities in Cuba that my colleagues, some who sit on this committee, would take away. And in March, a New Jersey-based telecommunications company announced an agreement to provide direct international long-distance telephone service between the U.S. and Cuba so relatives could talk to each other. These companies have an opportunity to make an incredible difference in the lives of everyday Cubans by connecting them to the outside world. Now, there's plenty of problems and challenges that we face. There's no question about that. And uh, I was going to ask you, um, Ambassador, if, or Assistant Secretary Jacobson, what have been the greatest areas of progress in the talks so far with Cuba? Cuba, and what can we expect from this upcoming round of talks? If you could be brief and concise, because I have a bunch of other questions. I will, thanks. I think, I think the greatest um, progress so far is just the, the acceptance by both sides that we do want diplomatic relations, that we want embassies, and our understanding that we will be able to um, operate in Cuba uh, in a way that allows us to engage with more Cuban citizens. That, that is incredibly important, and, and we see that as, as really um, critical to this whole engagement process. And I think in terms of what we will talk about tomorrow, it's really getting the rest of the agreement uh, for an embassy that operates similar to the way we operate in, in, other, in some other countries. Thank you. Um, Assistant Secretary, you testified at a subcommittee hearing Senator Rubio and I held in February about the impact of the President's new policy on human rights and democracy in Cuba. And I asked you about the impact of the President's new Cuba policy on U.S. relations with other countries in the region and the world. And you answered then uh, that the reaction was immediate and extremely positive. Those are your words. And I was very pleased about that. Now, we also discussed then the importance of engaging regional partners on issues related to human rights. Has the administration been able to leverage regional and international support for its new Cuba policy to increase pressure on the Castro regime for its blatant violations of basic freedoms and systemic repression and abuse of its citizens? Has there been any success so far in engaging uh, our partners on those issues? Well, I, thank you, Senator. I do think that we've had conversations certainly with many of our hemispheric partners that have been much more productive than they were in the past. I certainly would second what um, Senator Cardin said about the fact that in Panama, the president was able to have a roundtable on civil society with President Tabaré Vázquez of Uruguay and President Solís of Costa Rica, which included two Cuban independent activists, dissidents, as well as 12 or 15 others from around the hemisphere that is something very unusual. They would not necessarily have sat with the U.S. president to do that before this policy change. And the Cuban dissidents who were there were able to connect with colleagues around the hemisphere, which wasn't possible in the past. Um, I also think that the reaction of the Panamanian government to things that happened in Panama, including uh, government-sponsored non-governmental organizations preventing the full exercise of freedom of speech in the civil society forum was very forceful. 
on how democracies operate, and that too was a change from what we've seen mm -hmm. sometimes in the past. Well, I think the fact that our regional partners got to actually meet human rights advocates is very important because a lot of times, you know, see no evil, that's it. But having spent time with them, I think, is critical. So that's a very good report. Now, Cuban President Raul Castro has said he will step down in 2018 following the end of his second term. This means for the first time since 1959, uh, Cuba will not be led by one of the Castro brothers. Reports indicate that President Castro is grooming his first vice president, Miguel Diaz-Canal, to succeed him. Can you talk about the importance of this transition of power in Cuba, and could you shed a little light on this first vice president? I'm not sure I can shed that much light in this area. What I can say is I do think that um, a transition that is taking place is not just one of, um, you know, the the a, a normal or even Cuban election that is taking place in 2018. It's a generational change, um, and and the the exit of either of the Castro brothers is very very significant. There are changes in. Um, the way that elections are going to be done in Cuba, still not what we would like to see in a, a free multi-party election. Um, but I do think it's going to be significant. Obviously, Vice President Diaz-Canel is the next generation uh, of leaders. Um, we have not met with him. I have not met with him. But I know many of you have who have gone to Cuba. Many of the CODELs have. So there may me, be more knowledge in the Congress than we have. Ms. Shema, I will close with this. Um, I think this 2018 election is a real test for us in a way, because if we can focus on democracy and freedom and fairness, it's, it's a very specific thing we can work on. And I'm going to work on that myself. Uh, in closing, may I put my opening statement in the record? Without objection. Thank you. Absolutely. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Secretary Jacobson, I, I want to kind of talk about the legal authority that uh, President Obama is using to take his actions. Uh, in 1996, in reaction to the Cuban downing of two civilian uh, uh, aircraft, uh, Congress passed the Cuban Liberty and Democratic Solidarity Act of 1996, called the Libertad Act, or commonly referred to as the Libertad Act. Uh, the, the purpose, the, the primary purpose is, number one, to assist the Cuban people in regaining their freedom and prosperity, as well as in joining the community of democratic countries that are flourishing in the Western Hemisphere. And the third reason, again, I think a, a primary one, to provide for the continued national security of the United States in the face of continuing threats from the Castro government of terrorism and theft of property from the United States nationals. Uh, that, that was the purpose. Now, I think what was noteworthy about the act is uh, it codified all restrictions under the Cuban Assistant Control Regulations that were enacted by or uh, promulgated by the Treasury Department in 1963, and it codified the Cuban embargo. And what was noteworthy is this really had long-lasting effect on U.S. policy options toward Cuba because the executive branch is prevented from lifting the economic embargo without congressional concurrence until certain democratic conditions set forth in law are met. Let me talk about specifically what those conditions are. In section 203, it says that the, the 
Upon making a determination under subsection C3 that a democratic elected government in Cuba is in power, um, the President shall, upon determining that a democratic elected government in Cuba is in power, submit that determination to the appropriate congressional committees. Now, th those are, so let me first ask, has the President made the determination that a democratically elected government in Cuba is now in power? The President has not taken actions under those aspects of the Libertad Act. So he, he has not invoked that, that, that part or any of the Libertad Act to take the actions he's taken. So he, he simply doesn't feel like he has to really refer to the Libertad Act? Or, or he, it, it, what is he doing if he's not basically lifting, no. lifting the embargo? What, what, what is this? What, I think uh, how is he skirting it? I think the President's made very clear that Congress is the only body that can lift the embargo. And as he said in his State of the Union message, uh, he called on Congress to do so. Um, therefore, he's made clear that he does not have the authority to lift the embargo. What's he doing? What it kind of seems like a lifting of embargo to me. What, what he's taken are executive actions and regulatory changes within the executive's purview with the embargo still in place. As you know, there were for years exceptions and, and continue to be exceptions to the embargo on agriculture. His changes make their exceptions on telecommunications and to support the private sector in Cuba. Those are the kinds of exceptions to the embargo that are within the executive branch's purview. Okay. Uh, do, you, do you basically agree with the primary purposes of that, that act, which I, I read earlier, you know, basically to in, ensure the freedom and prosperity of the Cuban people and to certainly enhance the, the national security of, of America. Do you think that's probably the two primary policy goals of, of uh, this country toward Cuba? Well, certainly the president's made clear that what we want is a democratic, prosperous, and stable Cuba, which I think is very similar to what's in that act. The question of our own national security should always be paramount in our decision making. Ambassador Shannon, I, I was struck by your comments about uh, kind of your attitude that democracy and freedom is, is flourishing in Central America. You know, certainly we have some good examples in Colombia because of courageous leadership, but you know, I, I'm not seeing a whole lot of democracy flourishing in Venezuela or Cuba from that standpoint. Uh, can, can you help me out on, in terms of what, what you're talking about? Yeah, there's, there's, there's no doubt that democracy is not flourishing in Cuba. Um, and it's, it's part of the, the president's effort to, to pursue a, a new approach to see what more we can do to help the Cuban people uh, begin their own political opening. Um, but as we look back uh, over uh, the last several decades, uh, what's important to remember and, and acknowledge about our hemisphere is this was a region uh, that was largely uh, ruled by authoritarian governments, uh, some military, some not, uh, but which has found through its commitment to human rights and through its ability to organize and use inter-American institutions like the Inter-American Human Rights Commission and the Inter-American Court of Human Rights uh, to, to develop civil societies around human rights issues and use that to build democracy. Uh, and whether it's Chile in the 1980s, whether it's uh, our work in Central America uh, to face down insurgencies uh, and move military governments to allow elections to take place for civilian governments to take over, uh, whether it's what we've done in Colombia, whether it's the, uh, the transitions to civilian and democratic government in Argentina, Uruguay, and Brazil. Uh, I think this hemisphere has really distinguished itself over the past three decades. Okay, okay. Well, I, I, I'm learning I'm out sorry. of time here. Uh, seeing as a primary purpose really is to provide the continuing national security of America, is it, 
I mean, is anybody going to make the case that uh, the, the Castro regime has been helpful in promoting democracy and freedom in this hemisphere? Is, is it not true that they are still supporting FARC in, in uh, Colombia, that they are supporting the repressive regime in Venezuela? Is, isn't that true, Sec Secretary well, Jacobson? What the, what, what the Cuban government has done and what we asserted in the report that we sent to Congress is the support for the FARC that we have seen recently is support for the peace process that's going on in Cuba between the FARC and the, Cuban, the Colombian government. Obviously, that was not always the case in the past, but at this time, we think they are playing a constructive role in that peace process. Okay. In Venezuela, it, it's a different issue, but I think it, in many areas, we, we do not see uh, Cuba in national security terms. We believe the engagement with Cuba through diplomatic relations will be far better for our interests than the previous policy of isolation. The, the, other, the other purpose uh, to assist the Cuban people in regaining their freedom and prosperity, uh, as Senator Rubio was pointing out, uh, we're, U.S. is basically the only country engaged in embargo. They, Cuba's been able to uh, trade freely with uh, the rest of the world. Uh, I'm not seeing the, the flourishing of prosperity as a result of that engagement. I mean, how, how in the world do we think, uh, okay, being able to trade with the U.S. is going to improve their prosperity all under the repressive regime of the Castros. Well, you're certainly right that their economic system has not made them a magnet for the trade and investment from other countries that, that they're able to have. In other words, other countries could have invested and, and been trading with them more than they are, but Cuba has to change to make that possible. But they have been able to promote a narrative of the U.S.'s embargo and isolation from them as the reason for those economic problems. We have now taken that excuse away and so it will be obvious that the problems are the lack of movement in their system. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Uh, Thank you, thanks, Senator. Mr. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Uh, Mr. Chairman, today is the 113th anniversary of Cuban Independence Day. It is a bittersweet date given the Cuban people's uh, languishing for more than 55 years under a dictatorship. Uh, as Assistant Secretary Jacobson reopens negotiations between Cuba and the United States tomorrow, let me be frank. I have deep concerns that the more these talks progress, the more the administration continues to entertain unilateral concessions without in return getting agreement on fundamental issues that are in our national interests and those of the Cuban people. So I know you said in response to another question, these are not things we negotiated, the things we decided unilaterally, but that's not, I, I really can't believe that. The Cubans, Castro said, you want a relationship? You've got to return the three convicted spies. Three convicted spies in the United States, including one who was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder of three United States citizens in international airspace. Check, we gave them the three spies. You want a relationship? Take us off the list of the state sponsors of terrorism. Check. We gave them that. You want a relationship stopped or change the democracy programs that we do throughout the world because we don't like those democracy programs because they interfere to our totalitarian regime. And so I wake up to an article that says from Reuters, U.S. signals it could change pro-democracy uh, programs in Cuba uh, that Havana objects to. Cuba has long objected to the pro-democracy program, which includes basic courses for my friends sitting in the press in basic journalism and information technology to the U.S. diplomatic mission in Havana. Check. Bring us to the 
Summit of the Americas, even though Cuba violates the democratic charter of the OAS, and one of your people say it doesn't matter, you know, who's invited to the table, it's what is talked about, but guess what? The democratic charter, the message, uh, Councillor Channon, that is sent to the hemispheres, you can violate the democratic charter and still be part of the club, so why not go ahead and violate it if you think uh, you're compelled to do so? Pretty amazing. You know, I have not seen any movement at all towards greater freedom. As a matter of fact, I like to commend the committee's attention to someone inside of Cuba, a Cuban blogger, Yusnavi Perez, in the Daily Beast, Cuba's 12 most absurd prohibitions that tourists will never see. And I'm just going to read a couple, Mr. Chairman. Cubans can't access the internet from their homes or on their cell phones. Not because, in fact, even technology infrastructure is not the case. They can't access because the government won't let them because information is a problem. So yeah, they want to perfect greater infrastructure, but for them to control it. You can't live in Havana without a permit. The blogger goes on to say, can someone from LA live in Washington, DC? The answer is obviously yes. But you can't live in Havana without a permit from the government. No public demonstrations are allowed, imagine that. No political parties are allowed except the Partido Comunista de Cuba, the Cuban Communist Party. No investment in medium and large enterprises. No inviting a foreigner to spend a night without a permit in your own home. And among many others, something as absurd as you can't bring from abroad 20, 25 artificial fingernails in violation of the law. I ask unanimous consent that the full article be included in the record. Without objection. So here we are. Human rights abuses continued unabated with more than 1,600 cases of arbitrary political arrest this year alone, only five months into the year. So President Obama may have outstretched his hand, but the Castros still have their fists real tight. You and Secretary Malinowski came before this committee and heralded that there was a downturn. Well, guess what? We're back skyrocketing back up in human rights violations and political dissidents being arrested, including the rearrest of the people who you negotiated to ultimately be released. Several of them have been rearrested. Now, despite the desire to move in a different direction, I see we get nothing in return. We still have, you're taking Cuba off the terrorism list? Well, Joanne Chesimard on the FBI's 10 most wanted terrorist list for murdering New Jersey State Trooper Werner Forrester. Charles Hill wanted for killing a New Mexico State Trooper and hijacking a U.S. civilian plane. They're both living in Cuba protected by the regime. The regime says, yes, we'll talk to you. We'll talk to you. Even though your counterpart has already said she got political asylum and she's not going anywhere. But we'll talk to you about it. We'll talk to you about it. So we'll all talk ad infinitum. So I, I just don't see it. So let me ask, and I hope my colleagues who are so passionate, and I listen to them, about democracy and human rights in many parts of the world, in Burma, in Vietnam, and a whole host of places in the world, but are almost silent when it comes to Cuba. Somehow democracy and human rights there is not as important as other places in the world. I hope we can keep the same standard. Let me ask you, Madam Secretary, to your knowledge, were you or any member of the State Department told not to push for sanctions on Cuba in violation of sending MiGs and missiles to North Korea in violation of UN Security Council resolutions, the types of missiles that, in fact, were 
in the hull of a cargo ship full of sugar being hidden where the MiGs insignias of Cuba were taken off to try to hide it. Were you told not to push, or do you, to your knowledge, was any member of the State Department told not to push for sanctions at the UN? Not that I know of. Did the, did the UN sanction Cuba? They did not. They did not. Let me ask you this. Uh, in the list of state sponsor of terrorism, you got a letter that says uh, that, in fact, Cuba has not, never did. Oddly, the Castro regime's assurances also asserted that the government of Cuba has never, this is in their letter, and you and the State Department uh, quoted it, has never supported any act of international terrorism and that the Cuban territory has never been used to organize, finance, or execute terrorist acts against any country, including the United States. Do you intend for members of the committee to believe that the Castro regime never supported any acts of international terrorism over the last half century? Senator, I think that what's crucial is that No, not what's crucial. Answer my question. Sorry. Do you believe, do you want this committee to believe that the Cuban government has never sponsored any act of terrorism over the last half century? I, I can't say that I would urge you all to believe that it has never occurred. No. Well, but what because I'm I hope you don't mean to suggest that the historical examples of providing support to former armed insurgents in the 1980s, including the M19 in Colombia, the FMLN in El Salvador, the FSLN in Nicaragua, or that the fact the Cuban military didn't shoot unarmed civilian planes carrying American citizens over international waters for which they are pending indictments from a United States jurisdiction against several individuals in Cuba, which I'm wondering, are you pursuing that in your negotiations with Cuba about them answering those indictments? That, that is why we're going to have the law enforcement conversation for the Justice Department to be able to pursue. Do you realize who issues. some of those indictments are against? Yes, sir. And do you think you're going to engage in a conversation with them responding to justice? Senator, do you think the Castros are going to say, yes, we're going to appear in a court? I, I don't I, think so. Understood. Let me ask you one last question, if I may, Mr. Chairman, if I have the chair's indulgence. You know, uh, you all came here and said that, oh, there's a reduction in political arrests in January as a sign that the administration's Cuba policy was achieving results. Not surprisingly, these numbers climbed dramatically in the ensuing months, with more than 450 political arrests in February, more than 600 in March, more than 1,600 political arrests in total during the first four months of 2015. 1,600 in the first four months of 2015. Now, as I'm sure you know, this past Sunday, more than 100 activists in Cuba were violently arrested, including 60 members of La Damas de Blanco, represented there by Berta Soler, following their attendance at a church service. So I guess Berta was right when she said the Cuban government will only take advantage to strengthen its repressive machinery. Because all these women were doing is marching in white with a gladiola to church. And the result of that is to be beaten and thrown into prison. That is not success. So I, 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 I don't get it. So the final thing I'll say, Mr. Chairman, I have a lot of other questions, but in deference to all my colleagues, and I appreciate is that this is a one-sided set of circles. I don't know what we've gotten in return. We have gotten nothing in return, but the Cubans have gotten plenty in return. And if that's our way of negotiating, 
then we have a real problem on our hands. And the message we send in the Western Hemisphere, in Venezuela, where we have, I don't see our partners engaging with us because we changed our Cuba policy. This opens the door towards promotion of democracy. We're not seeing very much democracy in Venezuela. I'm not sure about it happening in other places in the hemisphere for which we have challenges as well. And so uh, I think that that is a hollow promise based on what we see, and I appreciate the chair's courtesy because of my interest in this. Absolutely, thank you. Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you both for being here today. Uh, this is an important topic. In my career, um, I've watched and, and seen the U.S. Uh, strategy of engagement in various parts of the world, China, Vietnam, Dominican Republic, Haiti, um, to mention a few. It's worked in some, it's not in others. I echo what uh, Senator Menendez just said about Venezuela. We buy $32 billion of oil a year. We haven't affected their regime one iota that I can see. I have three concerns about what we're talking about today with regard to uh, uh, our changing our relationship with Cuba. Uh, one is their continued support of terrorism. Two is their human rights record that continues today. And three is their activity in armed smuggling. Um, and we'll get to those in a second. I have a very short question. I hope you'll be brief. But, you know, as in 2003, Cuba allowed Iran to operate on their soil. We know about the, the attack on U.S. telecommunications. Um, Cuba's reported to have supplied intelligence services to Venezuela re recently and its allies. Cuba has provided assistance and safe haven to terrorists, including members of FARC and the Basque uh, ETA. They continue to harbor fugitives, one in the U.S., including a fugitive today listed on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. Cuba's also helped Islamic extremists, including members of Hezbollah, slip into North America unnoticed. A Cuban state-owned enterprise provided Venezuela with advanced technology that used to provide illicit U.S. passports, visas, and other documentation to 173 individuals from the Middle East between 08 and 12. That's, that's ancient history, according to the administration. But let's talk about recent history. Just since President Obama started these secret negotiations with the Castro regime since June 2013, there have been reportedly 15,000 political arrests, 2,500 such arrests just since the President's speech on U.S.-Cuban relations in December. And to make it even worse, between February and March of this year alone, Cuba has increased the number of politically motivated arrests by 70 percent. As troubling as that is, I'm even more troubled by it, Cuba's continued uh, nefarious activities with regard to arms smuggling. We know about the earlier shipment in, of 240 tons of military equipment uh, confiscated on the way to, South, or to North Korea. But we are talking about February 28th of this year, 2015, a Chinese flag vessel, Da Dan Xia, was intercepted in Cartagena. Over 100 tons of explosives, 2.6 million detonators, 99 projectile heads, and over 3,000 artillery shells. This was bought by a, uh, or bought from a Chinese arms manufacturer named Norinco on behalf of Techno Import, which is a shadow company from the Cuban military. The question is, with this type of activity, what assurances uh, can you give us? Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I'd like you to, to take a shot at this first. You know, with this kind of continuing and current activity, why should we be optimistic that just by opening up economic relations with these people, uh, this regime, that uh, this type of activity will change. Well, thank you very much, Senator. <clears throat> um, and I can assure you that just by opening up economic activity, uh, we will not necessarily change behavior. Uh, it's a longer process than this. 
Um, but in regard to the larger diplomatic environment, and Assistant Secretary Jacobson can address some of the more specific issues, uh, in, in regard to the larger diplomatic environment, the, f the fact that these ships were stopped was significant. The fact that they were inspected was significant. The fact that these items were found was significant and shows an ability to cooperate um, uh, with our, our partners in the region to control and, and monitor this, this kind of activity. Uh, and this will deepen uh, with time uh, as people understand uh, that the, uh, the, the broader purpose of our diplomacy is not simply to normalize relations with Cuba and build uh, a, a, rela a relationship uh, with Cuba that will change how we try to promote our interests and democratic values, uh, but that it's also about how we enhance the integration and cooperation inside the hemisphere. And partners of ours who have been leery of working with us around Cuba issues because they do not want to get caught into the vortex of a very powerful and, and historic animosity uh, are going to be more open to engaging with us on this kind of, uh, this kind of activity. So I, I believe uh, that we're actually going to be able to do more in, in the area of security. We're going to be able to do more in the area of nonproliferation. We're going to be able to do more in the area of fighting drugs because of this. Can I ask a follow-up on that, Mr. Ambassador? So why wouldn't we, to follow up on Senator Menendez, why wouldn't we make that a prerequisite, that better behavior would, would lead to open um, economic relations? Or, Madam Secretary, either one. I think, Senator, if I could, the, the real, we, we all want the same end. It's a question of how we basically motivate that behavior or how we, how, how effectively we can uh, help support change. The, the president believes firmly that the efforts we made in the past, which were in fact to say you must change first and then we will engage, just didn't work to make the changes inside Cuba. May I ask you a question on that? Certainly. We have evidence though, cause and effect, of several other countries, Britain, Canada, others, having open trading relations with Cuba. We're the only one really embargoing. And yet that engagement really has not changed behavior. So what makes us believe that today our opening up of, of economic relations with Cuba will actually have that effect? I mean, I think that's a fair point. And we don't know yet what the effect of this policy will be on the Cuban government. We, we do see already the effect, the beginning of the effect on the Cuban people. While we decry the detentions uh, of the activists, we know there are Cubans who are benefiting from this new policy in their independent businesses and in their belief that they're going to uh, prosper and have a better life because of engagement with the U.S. The other thing I would say is I'm very engaged with my EU counterpart and with my counterpart in Spain in working with them so that we can now work together. And when we work together, not just with our regional counterparts, but with our European counterparts, that is more powerful. And I think that could have a more galvanizing effect, but it, it will be slow. I don't deny that. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to the witnesses. Uh, my colleagues have asked great questions about the particulars of the U.S.-Cuba discussion. I want to talk a little bit about the region. The Americas and the Caribbean are 35 nations, I guess by the general count, nearly a billion people. If I do my kind of back of the envelope math, 35 nations means about 600 bilateral relationships between the nations in the region. Some of the bilateral relationships are strong and friendly. Some are weak. They're warm, they're cold, and they change over time. Um, 
Is there any other bilateral relationship in the Americas that does not include normal diplomatic relationships other than the United States and Cuba? I'm not aware of one, but you guys are the experts. No, sir. So this is the only one of the 600 bilateral relationships in the Americas that does not involve a normal diplomatic relationship. Let me ask you this. I'm not aware of any war between nations in the Americas, our two continents right now, uh, between nations. Uh, am, am I right about that? You are correct. And the only civil war, I, there are security challenges, obviously, of many kinds, because we're 35 nations and a billion people, but the only civil war right now in the region is the war between the Colombian government and FARC and another, another smaller uh, terrorist organization BLM. that is currently subject to a negotiation that Cuba is hosting where the U.S. is playing a role accompanying the Colombian government, correct? Right, that, that's correct, and, and we're not accompanying but have this special envoy now, and it's also the longest-running civil conflict in the hemisphere. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but if that negotiation works out positively and we are then, we, we have the ability to be two continents, all Americans, uh, without war, without civil war and without war between nations, that would be pretty unusual in the history of these two continents, wouldn't it? Uh, it would be an historic achievement. And it would be pretty unusual given other continents, wars or civil wars in Asia, wars or civil wars in Africa, sadly wars or civil wars in Europe. You talked in your opening testimony about the increasing trade in the Americas. You know, the majority of the American trade agreements are with nations in the Americas. There's more trade between the nations in the Americas. There is, there has been a move in the last 30 years from governments that have been autocratic or military toward democracy. Again, not that there aren't challenges, not that there aren't problem children. We're, we're human beings after all. There are going to be challenges. You each have spent your entire professional careers working in the Western Hemisphere. This is what you've devoted your professional lives to. Tell us what it, what it means to the United States of America to potentially be the, the anchor and the leading nation in two continents with no war, no civil war, complete diplomatic relations, and an ever-increasing trade and interdependence. Talk about what that means to the United States of America. Senator, I, th I think those are incredibly important points. And for me, one of the things that I see in this hemisphere is not only um, the hemisphere's importance to the United States and to our people daily, whether it's trade, familial ties, um, the, the growing influence and culture uh, that we share, um, and the way in which the values in this hemisphere are the same as ours. But I also see this as a model um, with so many flaws that still have to be overcome and challenges that we all face and inequalities of, of you know, systems and democracies even where they exist. But remember that in the transition from military to civilian government, truth commissions and the process of that was first done in this hemisphere with the CONADEP in Argentina, uh, a model that then South Africa looked at and Eastern European countries looked at and others have looked at in the Arab world now. Um, remembering also that the terrible adjustment of the 90s on macroeconomic issues um, were things that this hemisphere went through first 
And now, with the free trade agreements, the broadening of those economic changes to be greater social inclusion and ensure that everybody is included in those benefits is taking root here first. So I think it isn't just what we do for ourselves, it's what we are then able to do elsewhere, including working with these partners, increasingly capable on global issues that matter to us from climate change to the Middle East to peacekeeping, where Uruguay per capita is the largest contributor of peacekeepers in the world. So I think it's, it's not just a phenomenon that we'll, we will be proud of here, but one that, that is in fact projecting outside. Yeah. If I could just add briefly, uh, as we look out onto the globe and see some uh, very demanding, in some instances, frightening security challenges, uh, to have a strategic enclave in our own hemisphere where we are fighting no wars, uh, facing no significant insurgencies or terrorist groups, uh, and are able to have commerce, uh, uh, both in manufacturing and services, uh, but also in political dialogue, uh, is a remarkable thing and a remarkable accomplishment. Uh, and to have examples of, of societies that have moved from authoritarian government to democracy, have moved from closed economies to open economies, as I've noted, uh, is a, uh, a confidence builder for other countries uh, around the world who are facing similar challenges, because uh, our hemisphere has shown that democracy is not a status quo power structure, that it's not about preserving privilege, that it's about addressing profound social problems and doing so in a peaceful way, in a transformative way. And so I, I think we have a, a remarkable platform uh, in the Western Hemisphere from which to engage the rest of the world. And as the Assistant Secretary noted, and as I noted in my testimony, this is a region that's moving from global isol isolation to global engagement. And in many ways, one of the most interesting stories of the first half of the 21st century is not going to be inter-American relations. It's going to be how the Americas relates with the rest of the world. And the fact that we have um, four of our free trading partners uh, um, being part of the Trans-Pacific Partnership and looking for ways to transform their own economies by reaching across the Pacific into Asia and doing so as democratic countries that support open markets, that support free trade and support um, uh, the international institutions that regulate trade is, is, a, is a dramatic uh, accomplishment and will um, have a, an impact on the larger economies in South America uh, that have yet to sign up for these kind of larger agreements. So, we are um, at a moment of strategic momentum. And if we are able to show that this hemisphere can function uh, hemispherically around establishing uh, priorities and building approaches to those priorities, uh, and if we can show that through our dialogue we can present a, a, a consolidated face to the rest of the world, uh, we will have done something remarkable. I thank the witnesses for their testimony. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, sir. Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank, I want to thank the Chairman and Ranking Minority Member for scheduling this hearing. Uh, this has been very informative and obviously an, intro, an area where there's much interest here. Um, I want to thank the witnesses, and uh, I want to thank them particularly for explaining that this new policy is not a reward for good behavior on, on behalf of the Cuban government. Um, obviously, there are concerns, huge concerns in terms of human rights. Um, that, uh, that need to be addressed. Um, but I, I appreciate a clear-eyed vision of that that the administration holds. And if you could just explain, Ms. Jacobson, is it easier to have those discussions with regard to human rights or 
perhaps negotiating uh, with it for fugitives from American justice. Um, if we have diplomatic relations or have a better relationship and better contact than the situation that has, as it has been. It's only possible, really, with a policy of engagement. Those were things we really couldn't do before. All right. Well, thank you. And that, that's uh, important, I think, important in this discussion. We often think, well, you know, is this a guarantee now, this greater engagement, that any improvements will be in the offing? Uh, that assumes that we're, we have a good policy now that is yielding benefits. And we haven't. We haven't for about 50 years now. And, and now, at least, uh, there's a possibility that we might be able to make some improvements and, and see increased freedom uh, for the Cuban people. And so I, I applaud the administration for uh, taking this position and for pursuing this. Uh, let's turn to travel for a minute. Um, it was said before that uh, when people travel, uh, some do stay in the hotels owned by the government, and therefore revenue will flow to government. There's no doubt that that will happen. Uh, but it's significant, uh, as was mentioned uh, by Senator Boxer, that companies like Airbnb uh, have uh, gone into Cuba now. This is a company that has a website that books travel, mostly bed and breakfast, for people in their private homes. And I was just looking at it uh, while we were here, and if you, if you just scroll down, uh, they have now, I understand, more than 2,000 listings in Cuba. Now, a bit of perspective, it took them months, or I, I, I'm sorry, years in some of their other markets, like San Francisco, to get up to 1,000 uh, listings. You've got 2,000 listings. I think, and this is just, I think, 1,000 over just about 50 days. Uh, so this is, it's very significant. And for the most part, or virtually all of these listings are people in their homes, uh, people who will benefit uh, from visits uh, by Americans and others. Uh, and, and that there's less of a chance or less of that money certainly will flow through government. Nobody denies that increased travel will increase revenue that goes to the Cuban government. But at what cost the, to the Cuban government? I've always felt that, uh, that if we lift some of our restrictions, that the Cuban government may seek to impose some of their own because obviously they want the revenue, but they fear the... Uh, they fear uh, what else, uh, the freedom that might come with increased travel. But I've often also said that if somebody's going to limit my travel, it should be a communist. <laughs> that's, that's what they do. Uh, not our own government here. That's not our purview. That's not our prerogative to limit the travel of Americans. Um, so with regard to Cuban-American travel, I think it's significant. Uh, the president lifted some restrictions a few years ago. Uh, Ms. Jacobson, could you tell our, our Ambassador Shannon uh, what has happened in that regard in terms of increased travel over the last couple of years with the, with the policy changing with regard to Cuban-American travel? Thank you, Senator, um, very much. I, I think that it's clear that in the regulatory changes that the administration has made uh, over the last few years to increase the ability for families to see each other, for Cuban-Americans to go to Cuba, um, as well as the changes most recently in December, there have been many more Cuban-Americans traveling. There have been, uh, certainly it's been critical to us, I think, to ensure that remittance amounts uh, go up, and they did quite dramatically in this most recent regulatory changes. 
um, because in many ways they have been the capital that has founded some of the most important private sector emergence um, and will almost certainly continue to do so including some of these private homes that are serving uh, as if on Airbnb, people who want to run their own businesses, who are allowed to, in areas that the Cuban government will permit, but don't have the resources to do so and can be helped by uh, folks in the United States. Well, thank you. Um, as one who's traveled frequently to Cuba over the past 15 years, I can tell you for several years there, it was tough to see any change or progress uh, because the Cuban government, it seemed that they would loosen controls when they needed to and then tighten them again. Uh, but traveling there over the past couple of years has been a significant difference. And I think it's because of the increased travel, uh, particularly by Cuban Americans, that you see the type of entrepreneurship uh, that has been allowed uh, but will likely continue now. Much tougher to, to turn and reverse that, that's certainly the feeling that, uh, that those of us who've traveled down more recently uh, have gotten, and I think that that will only increase with increased American travel. Uh, there, like I, I said before, there are no guarantees that anything will happen, uh, but change is more likely to occur with increased contact from the U.S. And let, let me touch on uh, diplomatic relations and the appointment, uh, ultimately, of an ambassador uh, to Cuba. How will that help with regard to those who do business legally, Americans who do business legally in Cuba under the new regs, and uh, increased number of Americans who travel? What benefits will they have if we have full diplomatic relations that they don't have now? Well, obviously, our, our intersection in Cuba already provides some services in both those areas. But I would say that um, having a U.S. ambassador, having full diplomatic relations is always much better in terms of being able to engage with governments at a, a highest level, the representative of the United of the President, um, and being able to advocate for those businesses, U.S. businesses that can operate legally, um, being able to advocate for them against competitors, um, being able to support Americans while they're there. Um, it's also critical to us that we have sufficient staff to be able to support the influx of people and Americans who are going to Cuba so we can provide those services. We can only do that with full diplomatic relations. All right. Well, thank you. And closing, Mr. Chairman, I just want to thank the Ranking Minority Member for mentioning the Freedom to Travel Act uh, that has the sponsorship of uh, a majority on this committee, I think 10 of 19, and uh, we'll look forward to pushing that forward. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks for your interest in this issue. Senator Udall. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Really appreciate you. Uh, holding this hearing and, and doing it, you and, and uh, Senator Cardin, in such a balanced way. I just very much appreciate that. And I'm, I'm honored, Senator Flake, to be on your Freedom to Travel bill. I think one of the, the things that is so important is opening Cuba up to travel. Uh, and there couldn't be better ambassadors than our citizens going down to Cuba and visiting about what we're all about in terms of democracy and, and human rights and those uh, those kinds of very, very important values. Um, and I, I, at the beginning, just want to say I very much support this policy of normalization. I, I think uh, we're turning the page on a, uh, a failed policy that's been going on since the uh, early 1960s. We're moving to empowering the Cuban people, empowering Cuban entrepreneurs, and, and uh, 
I really welcome this new uh, chapter of normalized relations. Uh, it was mentioned earlier about, and you were asked several questions, really appreciate you both being here and all your hard work over the years in this area, uh, about the private sector. Uh, and I, I uh, uh, have looked for reports on what's happening down there, and I think it's fascinating in terms of the growth, the dramatic growth in the private sector. A 2013 uh, Brookings report, now there are probably more because that's an, that's an old report, uh, is looking at close to a million classified as private sector. You have uh, uh, 500,000 legally registered as self-employed, and then you have another 570,000 farmers who own or lease uh, private plots working solo or in co cooperatives. And as I think is mentioned in, in your testimony, there's, a, there's an organic sector that's also uh, working there, uh, organic farming and organic marketing. In addition to that, there's another estimated uh, from this report, 600,000 to a million, who are labeled private sector, but they are considered uh, illegal by the Cuban government. And so there's also a sector there that's growing. So you have these, these uh, two large sectors which uh, uh, could be in the range of two million. And I think that's, that's what, when we uh, travel down there, when we engage down there, when our commerce is, is, uh, is that, these are the folks that we're helping. These are the folks that we're helping grow. These are the folks that we're empowering. And I think that's a, that's a, a very, very good thing. Um, now, this, uh, um, one, of, one of the areas that I think is, is critically important and, I, and uh, uh, is increasing our agriculture interaction with Cuba. And so I, I'm also proud to be on Senator, in addition to Senator Flake, Senator Heitkamp has a bill to permit increased agricultural sales. I'm on that. And um, this week I'm introducing the Cuba Digital and Communications Advancement Act, also known as the Cuba Data Act, uh, with Senator Flake, Senator Durbin, and Senator Enzi. The goal of this legislation is very simple. Uh, give U.S. T telecommunications companies the opening and certainty they need to invest and help Cuba open to the world and give the Cubans the tools they need to engage in a 21st century economy and to share information and communicate more efficiently with each other and with the world. So, Secretary Jacobson, both you and the President have em emphasized that access to the Internet uh, is one of the cornerstones to the new Cuba policy. For those who have not been to Cuba, it's one of the least wired countries uh, in the Western Hemisphere. Things we take for granted, such as email on the phone, uh, are basically non-existent uh, in Cuba. What are the major challenges Cubans are facing to access the Internet, and what can U.S. companies and the Congress do to open up Cuba to the global Internet? Thank you so much, Senator, and thanks you so much for your interest in this and the conversations that we've had. I think that obviously um, a, a huge part of the um, obstacles to the Cuban people right now are sheer access to internet uh, connected devices, whether it's computers or whether it's uh, you know uh, smartphones. Um, when they have access, that access is expensive. It's almost prohibitive. Even when the cost came down recently for the public access to internet, it was still 
uh, extremely expensive. For most Cubans, it was about a half a month's wage. Um, and so what we're talking about, and then, then there is a question of whether everything is accessible once you get on the web or, and whether there are things that are blocked. So, so there, is a, there are huge challenges for the average Cuban. Um, I think that there is a combination of reasons for that, but the Cuban government fundamentally has to make decisions and we obviously want to encourage in every way possible uh, that, that information and access to the internet be made easier, cheaper, um, you know, available uh, and open for the Cuban people. Um, that will take a variety of decisions by the government that, that we're encouraging them to take by encouraging American businesses to have those conversations with them, and these are the means to do so. The, the, um the, the goal, as I think you said in your uh, testimony, uh, Madam Secretary, of the Cuban government is to have internet access for 50% of its population by 2020. So they have stated this goal. They say we're trying to move there. Uh, this is the goal the UN has also made for developing countries around the world. Uh, is this goal achievable by Cuba? And, and uh, if the United States telecom companies were allowed to invest in Cuba, how long would it take to completely wire the island? You know, that's a great question, Senator, and I, I'm not the best of tech, tech experts, but I will tell you that the tech companies that I speak to who had conversations either with Cuba or about Cuba believe it is absolutely possible. Um, and in terms of how long it would take, a lot depends on what the Cubans decide to do and what kind of infrastructure they put in. Yeah, th thank you very much for those answers. And just, Mr. Chairman, just a final comment. Um, I know that all of the things that have been mentioned here that are problems, that, that we don't agree with, problems and challenges in Cuba, uh, and we just have different goals to try to get those things changed. And as a last note, uh, I'd like to express my support uh, for the extradition of Charlie Hill. Uh, extradition of criminals, I think, is an important part of any normal relations between countries. Charlie Hill, who allegedly murdered a New Mexico state police officer, and hijacked a plane must be brought to justice. And I know the State Department shares this objective, and I hope we can continue to make this a priority until we get it done. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, my sense is there may be additional questions, and I'll defer my time uh, for others who, uh, who may wish to ask additional questions. And Senator Rubio. Thank you. Well, just a couple points I wanted to touch on. This Internet thing's important. I've talked about it extensively in the past. <laughs> As I listen to some of this conversation, I think there's this, still this perception that somehow the reason why there's no internet infrastructure in Cuba is because the U.S. hasn't gone in to build it. The, the Cuban government had a joint venture with an Italian company uh, for many years. By the way, the telecom industry in Cuba is run by the Cuban government, and it's a holding held by Gaesa, the holding company run by the uh, son-in-law of Raul Castro. The bottom line is virtually every telecom company in the world, and there are dozens of advanced telecom companies in the world that are not within the territory of the United States, have had access to the Cuban market. And they have not been allowed to build out or have dropped out of joint ventures. The bottom line is that the fact that American infrastructure will be allowed to come in does not mean the Cubans will allow it, and here's why. They don't want the Cuban people to have access to the internet. In China, they have something called the Great Firewall. 
They have access to internet in China. There's, there's all sorts of infrastructure. China has both nationally owned and, and, uh, and private companies within China that offer telecommunication infrastructure. And yet the people of China do not have access to the internet the way you and I understand it because the government places filters upon it. This is a government that won't even allow you to bring in certain books onto the island. This is a government that won't even allow you to you know, read certain newspapers on the island. They, this idea that they are going to somehow allow AT&T and Verizon to say, yes, come in and build all this infrastructure, unfettered access to the Cuban people is absurd. They cannot survive an internet opening. And so we can pass all the laws we want. The Cuban government is still going to place filters and you still have to work through their telecommunications company in a joint venture in order to build infrastructure on the island. As far as the travel is concerned, I think it's you know, Airbnb, that's fantastic, right? That they're all building this up. Well, here's the point. Number one is even private operators on the island of Cuba, bed and breakfast, casas particulares, whatever you want to call them, still pay an exorbitant fee to the government for the right to be able to provide that service. So even they even game that system to get their hands on money. That being said, the vast majority of people that travel to Cuba will not be staying at one of these facilities. They will be staying at segregated tourist destinations where tourists are largely brought in they experience that, that, that uh, facility, and then they leave. And the money's going to the Cuban military. And I've heard discussion about Vietnam and China. Look, we have full travel to China and Vietnam. We have business with them. They're not any more democratic than they were when all this started. Uh, so I think it actually proves my point that economic openings do not lead to political openings by evidence of China and Vietnam. But here's my point about the Cuban military. In addition to the fact that the Castro regime stole 6,000 properties owned by U.S. citizens or U.S. companies, of which zero dollars have been compensated. This is the Cuban military that has four, four senior officials, three senior officials indicted for the murder of four Floridians, indicted in U.S. courts. That, that, that's the Cuban military. This is the Cuban military that was helping smuggle heavy weapons to North Korea without consequence. They were caught, no U.N. sanctions, no, Amer no U.S. sanctions, this is not just a Cuban military. This is a Cuban military that is, uses access to funds to carry out the sort of grotesque activity. And so when we talk about travel to Cuba, business with Cuba, let's be very clear. We're not doing business with the Cuban people. You may eat at a, at a, at a home somewhere. This is a, still a very small part of their economy. For the vast and enormous majority of Americans that travel there, and that includes congressional codels, journalists, diplomats, and everyday American citizens, you will stay in a government-run facility Every dollar you spend there will wind up in the hands of the Cuban military that sponsors terrorism by smuggling arms to North Korea, that has senior officials indicted for the murder of Americans over international airspace, and, and a Cuban military that uses every access it has to funds to enrich themselves and repress the Cuban people. And so there is no economic opening to Cuba. There is an economic opening to Gaesa, which is the Cuban military-run holding company. Thank you. Senator Cardin. Uh, let me just very briefly, and then I'll yield to, to Senator Menendez. Um, just in regards to just some response here, there are 2 million cell phone users in Cuba. When I was in China, they do block full access to the Internet, although the U.S. Embassy site on air quality is one of the most frequently visited sites uh, by uh, China nationals. It's the only reliable information they can get about air quality. Uh, our engagement will bring faster connectivity and more quality connectivity to the people of Cuba. I'm convinced of that. 
the technology is there, Senator Rubio points out. It's a matter of making it available, and the people of Cuba will demand that. And, and let me just also point out, um, in regards to the Libertad Act, Libertad Act provides for licensing authority uh, by the administration, which is common in these types of legislation. So there is certain authorities that are included in the act. And I do look forward to a robust discussion in our committee. With the chairman, I would uh, yield the time to Senator Menendez. Senator, Senator Martin. Uh, thank you, um, Mr. Chairman, very much. Um, welcome and thank you for all of the um, good work which you have done. Um, uh, over the years, there's been uh, uh, clearly an isolation uh, from our country that uh, Cuba has had to uh, live with. Um, and I very much appreciate the, this administration's attempts to normalize uh, relations. I think it is important. I think it's a step in the right direction. And I think that the actions which you're taking uh, are beginning to uh, uh, make it possible for us to envision a day where we truly have normalized uh, relations with Cuba. But it's not going to happen overnight. And clearly, um, yeah, Cuba itself has to deal with the behavioral changes that um, that uh, are not going to come easy. But that said, I think the process has opened, and I think that we're going to head in the right direction. Um, I know that Senator Udall has already uh, talked about this, but I think it's important to uh, focus on it, and, and that is the relationship that exists uh, between uh, information and freedom. And, uh, and I think there is, without question, a huge um, cultural um, compatibility that we have with Cuba. Uh, otherwise, the Red Sox would not be paying all this money to be signing Cuban players right now. Okay? Um, they, they obviously have at least mastered that part of our culture. Uh, and uh, hopefully we'll be able, you know, using uh, better relationships to be able to broaden that uh, even further. Uh, Talking about the internet, talking about telecommunications, can you just outline just a little bit for me? I may have missed the detail that you uh, gave to Senator Udall, um, but what is your hope in terms of the transfer of and sale of telecommunications technology into the Cuban marketplace? Thank you so much, Senator. Um, obviously, the regulatory changes are fairly um, they're fairly broad in terms of what can now be sold and provided to Cuba in the telecommunications and information area. Uh, that may be uh, hardware, whether it's, you know, cell phones or other forms of computers that, that can now be sort of uh, not just donated as they could be before, but sold uh, to Cuba, uh, people in Cuba. Uh, and it also is services that are uh, providing information uh, such as the phone card and phone service that IDT in New Jersey recently signed a contract with the Cuban government to do, or other forms of telecommunications work. But I do want to be clear that it's true that all of this takes a decision by the Cuban government to move forward with modernization in their telecom sector. That is certainly true. Uh, American companies can be able to, under our uh, changes, participate in Cuba, but the Cuban government has already said it wants to modernize, and it said things to the UN 
and we'll have to see if they really take those steps. But we certainly want to be part of it uh, if and when they do. We want to encourage them mm -hmm. to do so. And I think as, as others have said, uh, we think the Cuban people want that as well. Well, I think the more that we have American tourists down there, the more that we have uh, cultural exchanges, the more that we have students uh, in uh, Cuba, um, the more normalized to that extent uh, is the more likely that the Cuban people, Cuban students are going to be saying to themselves, why can't we have that technology? And it, it's, it's a resistance, by the way, that existed in our own country. Our own country did not want uh, to, uh, uh, to uh, move to the digital revolution. Our cable and telephone companies did not move to it. There wasn't one home that had digital in 1996 in America until we changed the laws. We pretty much had to incentivize those companies, or we, we were going nowhere. Same thing is true for cell phones. Until 1994, it was the size of a brick, and it cost 50 cents a minute, and we didn't have one, ordinary people. Some wealthy businessman, Gordon Gecko in, in uh, Wall Street had one, but not ordinary people. Uh, in um, 2001 in Africa, only uh, 12 million people, 12 million people had cell phones, wireless devices. Today, it's 800 million, you know? So, you know, we've moved from these devices to these devices very rapidly in America, but they're doing it in Africa as well. And the more that it insinu insinuates itself into the culture of individual companies, it, countries, it changes the culture, it changes the business relationships. Uh, it changes the entrepreneurial spirit of a country. And we can see it in country after country over, um, over Africa. It's not uniform, no question about it, but you can see it where it works. It works big time. So I think the same thing is gonna be true uh, in uh, Cuba, uh, that the more that we can move these devices in, uh, is the more, and the more that the people in the country demand that they have access to it, so they're not the last country in the world without access to these modern technologies, I think that we're gonna see dramatic telescoping of the changes that we're hoping that will happen in that uh, country. Um, and, and so that's why of all the sectors, you know, that's why radio Marti and TV Marti were always focused upon by the Reagan administration. They understood the importance of this and the, the openings which you're, uh, which you're talking about here uh, kind of puts it in the mind, I think, of many Cuban um, ordinary citizens. Why not? Why not us? Um, so um, what is the level of negotiation or discussion that is going on in terms of these telecommunications technologies? Who are we speaking to? Who ultimately makes the decision inside of Cuba? Right, thank you, Senator. We had, um, uh, there's basically two tracks, if you will. One is government, that is beginning of conversations with the Cuban government about telecommunications, and the other obviously are many, many private sector conversations with the Cuban government to which we're not party, but we obviously know about uh, that they are taking place. Uh, on the government side, uh, we had our uh, ambassador for international communications policy, uh, Danny Sepulveda, who was in uh, Havana about two months ago now. That was the first time we had had that kind of a conversation with the Cuban government at an official level, meeting both with their telecommunications ministry as well as their telecom provider, which is state-run, Atexa. Um, to talk about 
sort of what kind of infrastructure they're interested in and how we have done things in the United States in terms of the regulation and the access issues, as well as obviously many, many U.S. companies have had conversations with the Cuban government and they are beginning to think about the um, licitations they put out, the request for proposals, if you will, of their own telecom sector. Yeah. So the quicker we can move them in that direction is the quicker their whole society changes. It, it's happened all over the world. They will not be immune to it. I thank you both for your great work. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Uh, without objection, I'd like to enter into the record uh, on behalf of Senator Rubio a letter to him dated February 18th uh, from the U.S. Coast Guard. And if there's no objection, I'll put it into the record. Uh, Senator Flake. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Just wanted to clarify a, a few issues. Um, again, we, we talk about telecommunications and say, well, the Cuban government may not allow this, and it's up to them, and we can't control them, and they may not allow it. That's true. Uh, they will allow what they will allow. But we have had a policy for decades that has not yielded the results that we want. And the, the question isn't, it's this policy or policy in a perfect world. It's this policy compared to non-engagement that we've had before and we know what non-engagement has yielded. And so the, the Cuban government may or may not uh, keep their promise to you know, make sure that 50% of the Cuban people are wired by a certain time. We have no control of that. We have control of what is in our national interest. And I think it's more likely that, uh, that it will occur than under the former policy we had. Also, um, with regard to uh, a statement that was made that uh, whenever an American travel, traveler goes to Cuba, every dollar ends up with the Cuban government. That simply is not the case. Uh, that uh, may be said by those who haven't traveled to Cuba recently, um, but uh, many Americans travel to Cuba. And it is true that you can't travel to Cuba without some revenue going to government. That is certain. Uh, but the notion that every dollar is, that is spent uh, ends up in the hands of the Cuban military simply is not the case. You have uh, burgeoning entrepreneurship in Cuba that is uh, a testimony to the fact that some money does flow to ordinary Cuban people. Um, and that has been particularly the case with the travel of Cuban-Americans over the past couple of years. And I should mention that uh, when that policy was announced a couple of years ago, that Cuban-Americans could travel not just once every three years, but as often as they would like, and remittance levels were increased, there was talk here in Congress about reversing that. That, well, you can't have that. That's not good. That's not good for the Cuban people. It's not good for America. I can tell you there is no serious talk today about reversing that. Because why? Because when Americans get more freedom, we tend to enjoy that, and we tend to want more. And I uh, would suggest that a year from now, the notion that would we, we would reverse this policy that has allowed more Americans to travel to Cuba and to, to help Cuban people uh, have access to more technology, uh, more capital, uh, more values, more contact with Americans, uh, will seem as absurd as reversing the changes that were made with Cuban-American travel uh, just a couple of years ago. So again, I, I applaud you for what you're doing. I look forward to working with the administration as this policy unfolds. Thank you. Senator Menendez. 
Oh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Let me, uh, let me ask you, when, when uh, a Cuban-American sends or visits their uh, relatives in Cuba and they get them a little money, uh, the only place really to buy something is a dollar store. Isn't that true? I, if you I, want to get something. I, I believe that certainly there's, there's more in those stores to buy. Right. Yeah. And b by the way, who owns the dollar stores? The, those, they are state-run. Okay. The like. government. Uh, and so uh, when I, if I want to send a remittance to my relative in Cuba, the Cuban government takes a slice, right? They do, but your relatives probably want their part of that anyway. Know, but the Cuban government gets a slice. Yes. So let's not deny that the Cuban government is greatly enriched by all these resources, which is why it has been its number one foreign policy objective. Now, let's talk about what full diplomatic relations are. You're going to be having this discussion tomorrow, as I understand. What my colleague, Senator Markey, said normalized relations are. After the summit of the Americas, the Washington Post ran a story suggesting that the talks to restore diplomatic relations were hung up because the Castro regime was unwilling to grant unrestricted travel to our diplomats, unwilling to allow us to send secure shipments to a future embassy, unwilling to let us have the number of staff necessary to operate a future embassy, and unwilling to remove the military presence around a future embassy. So let me ask you, would the State Department actually agree to establish an embassy in Havana if all of our diplomats aren't able to travel freely throughout Cuba? Senator, what, what I can tell you is that we have to have an embassy where our diplomats can get out and travel and see the country and talk to people. We have restrictions on the way our embassy personnel travel in terms of notification to governments in many countries around the world that range from 24 hours to 10 days. So we are going to do everything possible to make sure that we have the least restrictions possible. So, but our so we will accept restrictions that well, all of our uh, uh, diplomats at an embassy would be able to travel throughout the country. We will make sure that the embassy is on a par with the way we operate in, in other places that are restrictive environments, but... Would you agree to conditions under which we can't send secure shipments to supply a future embassy without the regime rifling through them? Well, Senator, I, I, I'm not going to necessarily um, lay out all of the negotiations for tomorrow well, why not? here. I mean, but no, what, what, wait a minute. Are these Senator, negotiations no, secret, me, or do we not have Senator, the United States Congress have the right to understand you, how you are trying to establish diplomatic relations? I think the, I think the nation needs to know under what conditions we are going to have or not have relationships. You so absolutely Are you do. going to allow the Cubans to rifle through your diplomatic pouches with impunity? We, or are you going to insist that you can send anything to the embassy as we do in other places in the world? That's a We absolutely yes no. believe in the inviability of the diplomatic pouch. We also believe that it's critical to resupply a future embassy, as we've believed it's important to supply the building now that has maintenance and upkeep issues. So that's a critical part of our discussion. So will, will you accept conditions less than that? We won't accept conditions in which we can't securely supply uh, our, our facilities. Would you to agree to, to open that. an embassy if you aren't uh, granted the number of staff you need to operate it efficiently? Not if we can't have the number of staff we believe we need, no. And are you willing to open an embassy if the Castro regime doesn't remove its military cordon from around the building? 
which basically is, an, is a way to intimidate average Cubans from approaching our facility. We will not open an embassy unless we believe that the security outside the embassy is appropriate to protect our installation, um, but we will also make sure that it is welcoming of Cubans into the installation as an embassy the way we do around the world. Let me ask you, 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 you agreed with me ultimately that the Castro regime statement as it relates to that they have never supported, never supported any act of international terrorism uh, is not true. So if you agree that these statements by the Castro regime are categorically false, how can you explain to the committee why you would think you can believe any assurances about the regime's current or future conduct if they boldface lied in the first place? What I would say, Senator, is that what we were looking at in the assurances is not necessarily whether or not um, their assertions on behalf of all recorded history for the Cuban government um, are, we agree with every statement of the past. What we have to look at is what the requirements are under the law, which talk about the rejection of international terrorism, which they have made, and the lack of any support or any evidence for support so they can for international so terrorism. They can partially lie to you, but not fully lie. Senator, we, we have differences in what we believe. They do not believe they have ever supported international terrorism. They sent terrorism. you a letter, and the State Department quoted that specific sections, which basically means which, you buy into it. It's incredible to believe that that section of the letter you buy into. Let me ask you this. The Red Cross under the President's December 17th announcement was supposed to be, have access to Cuban jails. Is that taking place? We do not say that the Red Cross would have access to What in, does the Red Cross? You, you announced that they would have, I understand it was access to Cuban jails. What is it that they have access I, to? I, I don't believe we ever said that the Cubans had agreed to that. What we said was that we were hoping that international organizations would renew their discussions with the Cuban government about those issues, including the Red Cross and the UN. In other words, has we, the Red Cross been able to get in freely into Not you? that I know. Not of. that you know. Okay. Now, last question. Uh, in uh, we talk about telecom access, a lot has been discussed here about that. Uh, in late February, the first Vice President Miguel Diaz Canal, who Senator Boxer referred to as the looks like he'd be the next heir in an election. First of all, there's no election in 2018, right? It's a selection. There's no election. Can we agree on that? We, we can agree that what the Cuban government calls an election is not what we believe meets international it's, it's, standards. It's, it's, it's the Cuban Communist Party, and that's it. So it's not an election. It's like I don't want anybody to think that we're working on an election in 2018. He gave a long, rambling speech. He is the second highest official in the Cuban government about the Internet in Cuba. And one of the most revealing statements was the affirmation that the regime's Internet strategy would be led by the Communist Party. Given the Communist Party's half-century-long effort to deprive the Cuban people of the most minimal standards of freedom of the press and of information, would you have the committee believe that the Communist Party won't make every possible effort to block access to all content that it deems undesirable, similar to what we have seen in other closed societies around the world? Senator, what I know is that when more people have access to the Internet, even if governments try to prevent them seeing things they don't want them to, 
They are remarkably inventive in finding ways to do okay, so. Okay, good. So then let me ask you this. Can we have your assurances that the State Department and the United States government will take all possible steps to ensure that the Cuban people have access to circumnavigation technologies that would be able to get around regime censorship. If we're going to say we want U.S. companies to go and develop this infrastructure in Cuba, surely we can have circumvention technologies so that the Cuban people are truly free to go see any site that they want, not only that which the regime wants them to see. Certainly, I hope that the majority, uh, the vast majority or all of the Cuban people will be able to have complete access to the internet. Hope is, um, not, hope is not a what, public what policy uh, achievement. I'm asking you, if we are going to license companies under the Libertad Act to go ahead and put infrastructure in Cuba, can't we make a condition of that license that they have circumnavigation technology so that Senator Flake and Senator Udall and Senator Markey and everybody who wants access to the internet for the Cuban people, which I also want, we're in common cause on that, actually can get access to the internet. What's so difficult about insisting on circumvention technology? I don't know that we can do that, but I also we know- can put any condition that we want well, as, a, as a condition of sale. I, I, also I, I wrote that, that section of the law I, I when I was in the House of Representatives. I know what it says, okay. and you can put conditions on. And I hope to hear back from you whether you will insist on that as a ability to have U.S. companies, if, if we want access to the Cuban, for the Cuban people to have the Internet, which I do. Well, I, I do as well, Senator, but I also want them to be able to have those deals go through and to make it the most effective way that more on the island can have access to the internet. A deal without full access to the internet is a, a deal more than to, they have to, now. To, to, to an end without access to the critical information that we think can help liberate the Cuban people. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Um, any other questions? Um, I want to thank the committee again. I know there's a lot of diverse views of this proposed new policy. Uh, actually a policy that's being implemented. And I want to thank the uh, witnesses for being here. Um, if you would, the record will be open uh, without objection to the close of business Thursday. If you'd answer promptly, we'd appreciate it. We thank you for your service to our country. And with that, we're adjourned.